Randy, welcome to the show. Thank you for making the time. Thanks so much for having me, Lena. So you and I met at a conference, uh, a local conference in Arlington, Virginia, and you told me this concept that I've never heard of before, which is around depolarizing organizational cultures. So I want to start with that because I think it's super fascinating, uh, brief things that you told me about it. So I want you to define like, what does it mean? And then also share some insights of how you actually help organizations do that. Yeah. So uh, interesting that you should ask for a definition because uh, my organization is called Depolarizing, Depolarizing Organizational Cultures. And it can actually be taken a couple different ways. So first of all, there are definitely some organizations that are having internal strife based on some of the, the cultural issues that are happening right now in society, the uh, polarization, the political division that we're, that we're experiencing. And so those organizations could use some help in terms of allowing people to exchange their ideas more freely and with less divisiveness uh, with less uh, anger uh, between them and more understanding, more curiosity. Uh, but it's actually also a, you, you can really view it as building depolarizing cultures inherently themselves, right? So depolarizing can be a verb when you're actually working with a culture to work on issues that they already have. Or depolarizing can be an adjective that describes the kind of culture that has a positive impact on all of the people within it and all of the people who that organization touches and all the other organizations that it's related to. Mm -hmm. So we want to help organizations, even if they're not already experiencing this kind of strife, to build the kind of culture that is welcoming to a variety of viewpoints and that makes sure that people aren't stifling their true beliefs and you know, which which also has impact on how they they interact in terms of business ideas or the goals of the organization that maybe aren't even related to uh, political issues or or public policy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when when that kind of uh, strife sets in and some people feel like they're not part of the organizational culture, they're outside of the uh, the culture of that organization, they start to shut down. They start to well, they stop sharing their ideas freely amongst each other. And that's not really healthy for an organizational culture, whether it's business or whether it's nonprofits, religious organizations, educational institutions, all of these types of organizations really need their members to feel like they can freely exchange their ideas without feeling that their, their colleagues are going to jump on them for not hewing to the orthodoxy of the organization. Mm. And and do you see this as something that's um, gotten kind of more challenge, like that's a bigger challenge for companies, especially post-COVID, because I feel like that was such a political dividing, yeah. culturally speaking, especially like, you know, because the companies were, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot that happened there, but companies started requiring like vaccinations. And of course, everybody related it to politics and then like a lot of other, you know, kind of belief systems and values. So do you feel it gotten worse since then or has it always been a challenge for organizations? Well, I do think that it's gotten worse. Uh, and there's a couple interesting trends that we can look to to figure out why. So in recent years, especially I think since the 2016 election, these issues have been readily apparent to us on a society level, right? Uh, but 
it is it, the that election was not just the catalyst of these uh, these trends. It was a result of decades of what's been going on in our political system, in our uh, in cultural trends. And one of the really important issues that's going on is sorting. So they're, you know, back to bowling alone and the big sort uh, from a few decades ago, these uh, these social science books that talked about how we are sorting ourselves geographically, right? Mm -hmm. And I was actually just reading a really interesting article about uh, college towns and how they're getting so much more blue these days and other, you know, more rural areas are getting more staunchly conservative. Uh, and so we are sorting ourselves such that our shared spaces, especially physical spaces, are kind of going away. We're no longer encountering people who believe differently from us uh, in everyday life. And and actually, we still do have some shared spaces. Some people feel that we're sorting ourselves digitally as well, that, um, that we're spending time in digital echo chambers. And that's actually less true than most people believe. But the fact is those digital spaces that we share have really toxic incentives. They incentivize us to really express our anger, to make sure that we are showing our loyalty to our political groups. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, it gets really amped up and we feed off of one another. And of course, the, the phrase culture wars is really, you know, has been become really prominent in, uh, in our current times. And what's happening is, you know, each side is building its affective polarization, which means that we feel that not only is the other side uh, wrong about public policy, but they're actively trying to harm the country and they're, they have moral failings and they are not, uh, they're not uh, morally uh, upright enough for us to engage with in a political sense. So we, we just don't have time for one another anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And so, of course, during the pandemic, a lot of people reevaluated their priorities in life. I certainly mm -hmm. did. And I actually moved from the West Coast, California, uh, to D.C. about four months ago. And I'm now very close to uh, my brother and his family. Uh, and I'm also a lot closer to my parents, my cousins, my aunt and uncle. And so family is really important to a lot of people. And, and, and especially in times of remote work, people are deciding to live where they want rather than where their job uh, has, has brought them, right? But as we continue to, to be more mobile in terms of where we are deciding to live, we are sorting ourselves more and more and, and saying, okay, well, if I'm moving, I might as well move to a place that has a lot of people who agree with me, right? Mm -hmm. So we are really reinforcing our existing biases by surrounding ourselves with people who, who just agree with us and only encountering people who we disagree with when there is just an absolutely toxic environment that is going to make those interactions uh, reinforce our beliefs about the other side, that they're the absolute worst and that they have no good ideas uh, to contribute. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the pandemic certainly kind of supercharged those those trends. It also has affected younger generations who are going through their educational experiences during that time. And a lot of them were just pure, purely online experiences where it's a lot more difficult to build those personal relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think we're suffering in a lot of different ways that is creating uh, these issues and these dynamics that we're experiencing now. Mm. Yeah, and I think just as humans, we're, we have this tendency to be part of a group 
so it's like it's it's a tribal mentality right like that's like if we take it way back like we almost want to be part of something and I think it's natural for humans to be like I want to be a part of something and then it's like us versus them and it's always I feel like it's always been that that struggle um have you have uh, so I know you your work is mainly within the U.S. but I'm just curious does do you see this happening if you know about it but do you see this happening in other countries is it primarily like a U.S. very much because we have that um, system here or is it beyond the U.S. borders is it just like a as a company we all experience these different things or is it primarily American problem yeah I mean these issues are happening around the world um, there was definitely we, we saw we've seen division in so many uh, countries around the world where you know f- uh, you know far left and far right uh, uh, political parties are popping up and they are you know at their at each other's throats more and more um, you see authoritarianism popping up in a lot of countries. I think in the U.S., one of the things that is interesting about us is we're ahead of the curve in certain trends. Uh, and so I think social media and the impact that, that that's had on our society is kind of more advanced here than it is in other countries. I just saw an interesting poll that said the U.S. is leading in terms of the negative belief about uh, how social media has impacted society. So we're one of the only countries in the world that believes that social media has been a net negative for our lives, right? And I remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago when the internet was was first developing and we were so excited about the potential of this to, to link all of us and to help us understand one another's stories and, you know, open us up to different cultures and and really just expand our world. And I think that a lot of people in the US, especially because of these negative incentives, have seen almost the opposite happen, right? Mm-hmm. It has expanded our world in a lot of ways, but it's also narrowed the, uh, the influences that are coming to us because of algorithmic, uh, you know, trending, right? So we are, we're constantly being shown things that will, that are easy to monetize because they agree with us and because they ramp up our anger. And so, and anger is, is very shareable, right? And so, so we are really leading that curve in terms of the, the negative impact that social media is having upon our mental health. Um, you know, we, we see this manifested in so many different ways, but especially young people are really suffering from this. Um, and so, so I do think that it is happening in other places around the world, but but we're ahead of the curve in certain dynamics of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that other countries are uh, likely to start experiencing that um, a little bit more in the way that we have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I imagine as I'm thinking of like organizations that I've worked with, I'm like, I wonder if they are even aware of this problem. Like, have you, do, do you run into it? Like, is it very obvious for leaders and organizations or do the, is it typically housed under another problem like like have you i'm just curious that maybe 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 they are very aware but yeah i mean so i think organizational leaders do have a sense of this but it is really uncomfortable to talk about this sort of friction within your organization um i've talked to journalists who have been trying to get you know this sort of story and a lot of organizational leaders are reluctant to talk openly about mm-hmm. the conflicts that they are experiencing within their organizations um, there was an interesting study that uh, Business for America and uh, the Civic Health Project collaborated on last year, 
It was called Business Bridging Divides. And they talked to about two dozen leaders in business. And most of them said that they were experiencing some friction. And, and about half of them actually said that uh, the leaders of their organizations were really struggling to respond to this divisiveness without being actually further divisive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and making things worse. Uh, and so, and we, we definitely see some, some conflicts around diversity, equity, inclusion training, right? Mm -hmm. um, so some of those, those programs have a, well, those programs have a variety of ways that they approach uh, their, their goals. And some of them take approaches that may not be the best for engaging uh, some of the folks that they really like to target. And so uh, they are, are taking approaches that, that uh, often say, if you aren't part of a, uh, a disadvantaged uh, group, a group that has been victimized in some way, that your perspective in part of this conversation is really not valued as much as others. And so what, that, what that's doing is making people check out of the conversation. And es especially those on the right, I think that uh, conservatives, many of them have felt like their you know, their place within those programs and by extension within the organizations that are running those programs uh, are really not valued. Uh, and so they are disengaging with those programs and it's often making situations within those, those organizations worse, right? And so I think that leaders are struggling with that issue, but again, they don't really wanna be very public about those struggles. Um, and so I think it, it's boiling under the surface a little bit, mm -hmm. but ultimately I, I do think that there is a reckoning that's, that's going to be happening as organizations continue to kind of filter out those who are not, who don't identify with their primary political culture, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're becoming a bit more monoculture, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and when that happens, you have an impact on innovation, you have an impact on retention. Um, and, and so there is definitely information that points to the you know negative business outcomes uh, for uh, for businesses that are that are not paying attention to this stuff, and also negative outcomes for uh, other organizations like nonprofits and uh, religious communities. Mm. Yeah, and uh, that's a good point because I'm also like, I'm like, okay, what's the cost if they don't address it? And you're cor correct because it's been studies have been done, numerous studies that diversity and that kind of, uh, you know, that sharing of ideas, the psychological safety is what drives innovation, as you mentioned, what drives collaboration. And that's how in today's day and age where it's so competitive, you need that kind of talent on board, right? And to be able to attract the right kind of talent as well. So just coming from a talent development perspective, I can see how it impacts recruitment strategies, um, growth of the business, uh, individual growth, all that stuff. So it's uh, uh, it's definitely a, a challenge that needs to be addressed. But yeah, I, I can see how people might not want to be public about it. Right. And, and, and also, I mean, not only are they impacting their ability to recruit from across the political spectrum, but they are restricting the markets that they can actually uh, market to. Mm. Right. So these days, a lot of uh, consumers are are demanding that the companies that they do business with, the companies that they buy from, uh, are more public about their their values. And so a lot of companies are feeling like trapped uh, in between these uh, these worlds. And when they when they restrict the the folks that they're bringing into their organization, they restrict also who they're able to speak to 
outside the organization, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a diverse customer base, you really have to have people within the organization that can speak to that customer base, right? Especially if you're a, a very public facing organization. Um, some, of, some of the organizations, some of the businesses that I have talked to about these challenges, you know, what is, what is so challenging is when there is a headquarters, often that's located in a, a fairly blue uh, urban area, and then their retail network, which can be nationwide, right? And you run into conflicts between the values that are espoused at the at the HQ level, mm -hmm. and then the the values that have to play out across the retail network, where the rubber meets the road, and you're actually in communities that have their own values and, and want to see those reflected in the the stores and the other retail operations that are that are going on within their communities, right? So. Mm -hmm. And and certainly there, are, it's really important to be able to support your uh, your employees in those uh, in those areas and stand up for their rights, right? Which I, I think a lot of, of uh, corporations and and other large companies are trying to do, right? But at the same time, if you do that in a way that alienates that community, that does tend to even put your your employees at, at further risk. Right, mm -hmm. a, a further risk from alienation from those communities. We've even seen violence in some of these, uh, you know, these retail outlets. So, um, yeah, these are really concerning uh, trends, and mm -hmm. organizations definitely have to be uh, to be focused on, you know, who they're attracting internally, but who they can speak to externally as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, before speaking with you, I never really thought about it from that perspective. So I think that you have a very unique kind of twist on organizational culture and you see it from a different lens, which completely makes sense. But I'm curious, how did you get in? Like, what what made you like recognize like, okay, this is happening. Like, what's what's the background story of you as a, as a professional? I'm curious. Yeah, sure. So I worked in the auto industry for about 15 years before I came to work on political depolarization. I'd always loved cars and I really considered myself lucky to be able to talk about them every day. <laughs> but eventually within that career, I didn't really feel like I was contributing a lot to the world. Um, I, I was getting a bit alienated from it. I actually went through uh, a layoff from uh, my last automotive job. And at the same time, I really found myself curious about perspectives very different from my own during the 2016 election, especially. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I said, you know, we really can have these conversations with one another, but we need the tools. We need the motivation because often it, it does take uh, some courage to engage in this, in these conversations, especially when our relationships might be at risk when we do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But if we stop talking about what we believe so deeply, then our, our marketplace of ideas, which is really essential to the functioning of our democracy, is at stake, right? And so, uh, so I thought about starting my own nonprofit, but I didn't at that point have any experience in the nonprofit world, the connections that one might need. And, but I was, I was writing about these ideas, and one of the friends who I shared this writing with uh, uh, showed me a podcast that an organization that was then called Better Angels was featured on. I said, wow, they're doing exactly what I what I would like to do. And so I decided to join that organization. Uh, they've since changed their name to Braver Angels, and that reflects the courage that is uh, that is needed for these sorts of conversations. Mm -hmm. And I, I got trained in late 2017 as a moderator within that organization. And I started to run workshops that would 
teach people communication skills and also bring groups of reds and blues, as we call them, uh, together to exchange their perspectives and really to understand whether their image of folks on the other side of the political divide was actually accurate, right? Mm. And, and one of the first rules in those red-blue workshops is that nobody is there to change anybody else's mind. And that was really a revelation to me, right? It was mm. about understanding one another more deeply, finding the common ground where it exists, because we tend to underestimate how much common ground does exist. And so at the end of pretty much every Red Blue workshop that I ran, someone would say, man, we are so much closer than I had realized. And mm -hmm. that was genuinely inspiring to me. Um, but I do remember this one moment where it reinforced that this is really what I needed to do with my life. And I was running a skills workshop um, that it was just basic communication skills. Braver Angels uh, now calls it skills for bridging the divide. And, you know, I, I was talking to a woman who had described a, some tension in her relationship with her sister. And, you know, she asked a question about one of these skills and I gave a, a deeper explanation and I just saw this light go on in her eyes and this weight seemed to lift from her shoulders. And, and she was given renewed hope about that relationship and that it could be strengthened and they could work through some of those uh, those frictions that they uh, that they had been experiencing. And once that happened, I realized how much of a positive impact that this work can have on so many people, uh, not only in their in their work lives, in their personal lives, in in their civic lives, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and that was just so amazingly rewarding. So I decided, okay, I'm, I'm all in with the depolarization work. Um, in 2019, I started uh, pushing things forward in California, where I lived. And then in 2020, I stepped in to lead the pivot from in-person workshops to online workshops, of course, when we all of a sudden needed those you know, uh, in spades. So, um, and I also, after that, started working with a lot of different partners, and so I said that, you know, many organizations are experiencing these frictions as the profile, uh, the, um, the awareness of braver angels started to rise around the country. These organizations were coming to us and saying, hey, we need some help. Right. And so that's when I really started to appreciate the, the place that organizations have in fighting depol in fighting polarization in this country. Mm -hmm. And and it really goes back to those shared spaces that are disappearing, right? Um, organizations in general, because they have shared goals, but they don't necessarily, they, they haven't always brought together people with the same political perspectives, right? So with those shared goals, they reinforce those relationships and people get to know each other outside of their politics before those political conversations come up. And then they come to appreciate one another as you know, friends, colleagues, fellow Americans who actually want good things for this country, right? And so once they realize that, they can engage in really difficult conversations about public policy and about politics and, you know, the culture wars and, and things like that um, with more good faith, with, with understanding that, all right, I know you as a person and I know that you want the best for me and for everyone around us. Right. And, and so it becomes so much easier to engage in conversations 
that are this hard, right? Mm. You know what I find fascinating is that as we, you know, develop as a human race, communication is still the biggest challenge we have, mm. right? Even though we get so intelligent and we, you know, we're so smart and and all those things, and yet communication and just being able to be open to different perspectives. And I, I speak to so many people and it's always like, whether we're talking about culture and organizations or leadership or kind of anything with managing teams or relationships, it just comes down to our, our um, how to say, our need to, to, to be right sometimes and to say, well, my team is the right team, we're the correct one versus just coming to the conversation with the open mindset and to to ask ourselves like what else could it be right like what else could it possibly be that this person is trying to portray that has nothing to do with me or my beliefs and this person is not trying to attack me or you know disrespect me but it's like you know just trying to understand each other on a little bit deeper level um i think is i always find it fascinating right that it's yeah absolutely and i think it ties back to what you were talking about before in terms of our innate tribalism Right. You know, I think that cultural anthropologists and social scientists have have been talking about this issue for many years that, you know, at the roots of humanity is, you know, we started out as, you know, tribal cultures. Mm -hmm. And if you were cast out of a culture, it was so dangerous. Right. And and so we have this fundamental need for belonging that is that is really very tightly related to our our physical survival. Right. Mm. Which is which is also why, you know, when we look at our our brains, the structure of our brains and how our amygdalas work. So th those are that's where our fight or flight uh, kind of instincts are baked in. Right. And when uh, when we engage in a um, in a conversation that has to do with our self-image and that self-image is threatened, it activates the same spot in our brain mm -hmm. that a physical danger does, because we know that if we are cast out of that tribe, it is it is so dangerous to us. And, mm -hmm. and of course, in modern times, right, it doesn't represent the same danger, but we have the same brains, right? right. And, and uh, if uh, I think a lot of people have seen the movie, uh, the documentary, The Social Dilemma mm -hmm. on Netflix, mm -hmm. right? really interesting take on what social media has done to us. Mm. And there's this one quote that I always come back to that I think is fascinating from, from Jaron, who's a, who's basically a, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the, the founders of kind of the social media movement. And he says, you know, we have uh, paleolithic brains, medieval institutions and godlike technology, right? And mm. our brains and these, these institutions that we've built can't really keep up with the relentless pace of technological development, right? Mm. And so now that we, of course, have AI, and that's become, you know, a huge development within, you know, the past year, um, that it's even more of a threat because, you know, those algorithms that that target us and, and really uh, surround us with our information bubbles are being supercharged, mm. right? And so... It's yeah, it, it's so much more than than our primitive brains can handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wish more people understood that, you know, because it is really just a response and we have to be like, okay, wait a minute. Like, let's take a step back, you know, let's not just react, right? And just work with our brain to to think something differently than what it's trying to respond with. So very interesting. 
Um, so looking ahead, you know, what are some, you know, what do you envision for the efforts um, that, that you're working towards with organizations? Um, what kind of impact are you looking to make and how are you going to continue to do that? Yeah, I, I really want to help organizations build those depolarizing cultures and do it for the long term, right? I think it's so important that we establish a, a lasting presence within organizations. Um, with, you know, in the corporate model, there are these uh, employee resource groups that are fantastic ways to help employees feel like they're supported. Um, often they uh, they deal with you know folks' identities, right? There are LGBTQ uh, groups, there are uh, you know ethnic groups, there are groups for women, etc. Um, but there there aren't as much groups for people who want to do this kind of work. And I really think that fostering those kinds of groups within not just corporations, but also, you know, every type of organization that exists mm. is going to be really important. And, and then linking those organizations, linking those, those subgroups within organizations is a really great way to help them feel supported and help them realize that these are absolutely common challenges that organizations around the country and around the world are dealing with and make them feel like they're not so alone in that struggle and that there's a lot of people who have a, a really strong interest in widening their perspectives, right? I mean, for me, it's it's been an incredible experience through my involvement with with Braver Angels. So I left that organization in um, in March of this year and uh, started uh, DOC, Depolarizing Organizational Cultures. Um, but but the the previous six years that I spent with that organization really expanded my network of folks to represent such a wide variety of, of perspectives. And mm. I think that's done a lot for me in helping me to understand the, um, you know, the, the range of human experience and perspective, right? And so I think there's a lot of people that do appreciate that and they want to experience more of that. But, you know, within organizations that are narrowing, uh, you know, in their, in their kind of political culture, their, their um, you know, their, their orthodoxy and their, belief in what should be acceptable to, to uh, say or talk about within organizations, right? People want an outlet for, you know, just a genuine curious exchange of mm. experience and perspective. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, before I ask you my um, uh, last question for you, where can people get in touch with you if they're interested more to kind of work with you or are you doing anything? I know you kind of do workshops and things like that for the public. Um, where can they best get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, they can go to my website, which is a depolorgcultures.com. So D-E-P-O-L orgcultures.com. And they can uh, click on the, uh, the, the connect button there and they can send me uh, a message about what they're experiencing in their organizations. Or actually right now, I just set up a, uh, a mechanism for them to book a demo session so they can do a half hour demo where we'll take them through a set of skills and exercises that uh, reinforce those skills. And, and they can see what these would look like within their organization, right? And how they can be customized for their specific, uh, you know, sector or size of organization, things like that. Um, so yeah, would love for people to, to book those demo sessions and to really experience what it's like to, uh, to build these skills. Um, you know, one of the things that was really important 
you and I talked about a, uh, a demo session that I did uh, last month, about a month ago. And coming out of that, one of the, the data points that I have been collecting about the experiences that people have in those sessions is the hope that people have that we can, we can move forward as a country together. Mm-hmm. And a, the vast majority of the people came away from that session with more hope than they previously had that we can actually move forward together, right? And, and that hope really helps to build the motivation, right? So I think that is so important. And, and that's what I wanna, wanna foster within folks who are curious about what this work looks like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, and I'll make sure to share all that in the show notes. So if anybody's listening, they're driving, they can't nod it down, it's all gonna be in the show notes in this episode. Um, last question I have for you is, what is one question you wish people would ask themselves more often? Yeah, I mean, pretty simply, it's could I be wrong, right? And there, and there's so many, uh, so many good uh, articles and books written about this idea. Um, you know, one of my, uh, my one of my friends from Braver Angels, Monica Guzman, wrote a book called "I Never Thought of It That Way," and I think it's a great encapsulation of this idea. Um, and in my experience with that organization, it really reinforced the idea of intellectual humility, the mm-hmm. the 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 absolute fact that our perspective is severely constricted, right? As as a human being by nature, right? We can only really see what we see, right? And so I really uh, I really hope that people uh, are just fostering their curiosity about everyone around them and about the different experiences that that we all have. And you know the fact is that people really see themselves as open minded. And, and so, but sometimes they need to be reminded of that part of their self-image. So when people have asked me, you know, what do you do when you encounter someone who is just so resistant to, you know, to someone else's perspective? And I think it does come back to the idea that as human beings, we're, we're inherently curious and people like to see themselves that way. And if you remind them of that part of their self-image, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I am open to to another perspective. I just wanted to make sure that you that you were clear mm-hmm. on my perspective before we we moved on, right? But but if when, once you remind them of that, they'll be like, mm-hmm. they, they they tend to open themselves up to different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes sense. I think it's just more just also like creating that space for them, and that you know where they yeah. I think it's just. Um... I, I do I do think inherently people are good and they mean well, you know. I think it's just kind of being able to have those conversations in a safe setting and uh and you know what I mean, like to, yeah. to be open with it. I think that's that's the key. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I, very much on on the nature of people. Like I, I see yeah. people as as good who the people want to do good things, be good to their neighbors. Um mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes we just have the wrong incentives assembled around us and it makes it look like you know we are inherently bad I, I just don't think that's that's the case yeah well thank you for the work that you're doing um i look forward to to seeing more and more of that work and i'm glad you're addressing a very much a challenging pain point for many organizations so kudos to you and uh thank you again for coming on the show thank you so much it's been great mm-hmm.